Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. What I want to do for you guys is run a bit of a best of chronicles of my travels from this year. You know, I had a great opportunity to visit a bunch of new countries this year, and you guys know how much I love traveling and visiting and exploring the world, that I thought we would mix and match and cut up and play with these episodes and kind of give you a highlights reel of some of the places that I got to see and some of the insights that I learned that are hopefully hopefully very valuable to you as a listener of this program. Now, before we get into that, I want to mention that in 2024, we're going to be doing a ton of new webinars. If you guys want to get involved, if you guys want to see the live presentation, we got some really cool things happening. You can go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars and see what's there. We got some coming up in January, February. I've got some ideas for March and April. There's going to be some really, really cool stuff on the go. While you're on expatmoney.com, make sure you guys are subscribed to the email newsletter. That is the number one place you're going to be able to hear about all of these webinars, upcoming conferences, different events, tons of little insights and other things from the expat and the offshore world. So make sure you sign up at expatmoney.com. Okay, so let's jump in. This first clip I want to play from you is from the Winging It Travel podcast, where I was actually a guest. Now, I republished this episode in episode 226 of our program. And in this, I'm just talking a little bit about how I got started in travel and why it is so important to me. Yeah, so I was really big into martial arts when I was a child. I did karate and kempo and arnis and stuff like that from the ages of six to 17. And when I was 16, I got accepted to Team Canada for martial arts and we got to compete internationally. So I went to, the competition was in Ireland. I actually placed silver medal. I was, I was very happy with that. And I went with my father to Ireland, England, and Wales. And that was about three, four weeks, something like that. And it was interesting for me because my father had always told me growing up that travel was the greatest thing he ever did with his life. But what I didn't understand, James, was like, all right, if this was the best thing my dad ever did, like, why didn't he dedicate more time yes. to it? You know, like, <laughs> why did he do like one trip and then stop? But I realized like when I started traveling, like he's he was right. Like he was 100% right. Like traveling is the greatest thing you'll ever do with your life. And I guess the big difference is I didn't stop. You know, I didn't do that and then go home and get the white picket fence and the life that everybody else did. Like I immediately went on and saved money and did the next trip and then the next trip and the next trip. 
And like I said, I mean, it's never worn off. Like it's never the novelty of it, the experience, the, I'm just constantly learning. It just never wore off. It just keeps going. But yeah, that first trip, just in really simple places like Ireland, England, Wales, now it's like such easy travel compared to some of the other stuff I've done, but it's still at the same time, it was such a special trip for Mm. me and a special experience. Yeah, that is, I'm glad you said that because that is one of the things I hear, or you must hear it all the time as well. If you talk about travel, people are saying, I love travel. And I say this to my girlfriend a lot. (laughs) I I go a bit on a tangent. I say, but do they love travel though? Because if they were loving travel, like you said, you'd be doing it all the time. Like people need to accept if they've got a house, for example, and they're a teacher, say you love teaching. Don't say you love traveling because you're not traveling, you're teaching. Same if you're an accountant, because I'm, I'm a firm believer like you, that if you love something that much, wouldn't you just make sure that your life is based around it? Surely. Exactly. That's why, you know, I've met a lot of travelers in my life and I've met a lot of other podcasters and bloggers and people like that. And it's like a lot of people really do it a little bit. And then a lot of armchair, like they just, you know, like I'm not an armchair traveler. Like <laughs> I am constantly going, I am constantly pushing the boundaries. I am constantly on the road, exploring things. Everything in my life is set up internationally. And I, I'm fully on board with you. If, if people are really passionate about it, then why are you not doing it more? And if you're making excuses, then why are you making excuses? Because if it really means so much to you and don't give me the excuse about, oh, well, I've got kids. I got two kids. My daughter speaks four languages. She's six years old. She's been to 15 countries. Okay. (laughs) So like, you know, and I homeschool my kids. So, you know, don't say, oh, well, once you got married, I'm Canadian from Danish heritage. My wife is from mainland China. I met her in Germany. We got married in Africa. Our daughter was born in the UAE. Our son was born in Brazil. And now we have a home in Panama and in a couple of other countries as well. So it's like there's, you know, people put up barriers about what they can't do, but it's like you're not looking at it closely. I mean, there's always going to be sacrifices. There's going to be differences. But if you work through it, then you can really have it for sure. In this clip, episode 263 on Turkey, we talk about what happened as soon as we arrived in Turkey and a little bit of drama drama. The other thing that happened to us once we got to Istanbul was actually within the first, I want to say, two days or three days, we're walking down the street. We actually went to go get our SIM card so that we would have connectivity so we could stay in touch with the nanny while she was taking care of the kids at the park. And I got my mother a SIM card and I got the nanny a SIM card. And we're walking down the street and my wife and I are ahead and my mom is probably about four or five meters behind us. And all I hear is like, oh shit. I'm like, turn around. And she's got her hand in her backpack and it looks like someone, I don't even know how to say it, stalked her, I guess, realized that she had her phone in her backpack, unzipped the bag and just lifted it, just took it. And he did this thing where he was kind of like, I think he must have unzipped it at one of the traffic lights while we were walking. And then at the next one, he reached in and then he bumped her kind of from behind. So she turned around and then he was already went straight. So he, she didn't even see him. He just kind of went right by her, but with her phone in hand. So she was super angry. 
Understandably so. And we were quite lucky though, because we realized what happened within seconds. And that second SIM card that I had bought for the nanny, I actually had it in my phone already. So I messaged my team and I had them lock down her phone within minutes and her email address and everything like that. And we canceled her debit card and she had one of my credit cards on her. So I was basically sat down on the side of the road on a curb somewhere and I froze my credit card within 60 seconds, two minutes or something like that of it being lifted. We had locked her entire phone, set it so that when they try to turn it on, it wipes the entire phone. Like we were just so Johnny on the spot with the whole thing. And I was lucky because my IT person was online and my chief of operations for my company was online at the same time. So between the three of us, we just locked the whole thing down within seconds. So they didn't get anything extra because when we started telling a couple of our friends and our colleagues and stuff like that in Istanbul, they're like, yep, I've been robbed. Yep. Me too. One of the girls that we work with, she's been there for 30 years. She's like, yep, I was robbed here. I was robbed there. So I guess pickpocket is like really common. You have to be super careful in Istanbul. But I think for sure, these people were pros. They knew exactly what they were doing. I reckon there was a couple of them. I'm sure it wasn't just one person and they probably do this all day long. So really what they got was a useless phone that they wouldn't be able to do anything with. There was $250 in cash in it. Well, the really annoying one for me was the credit card because that meant for the rest of the trip, I didn't have any credit card. Well, actually, I mean, I had my backup one, but the main one that I used and I like to collect points on, I didn't have. So that was annoying, but my wife had hers and and everything like that. So she got to buy dinner every night, which was funny. But then the driver's license. So my mother's Canadian driver's license and her Panamanian driver's license were both in there. So replacing those are going to be a pain in the butt for sure. Now, we were in Turkey for probably about a week, and I've been to Turkey, I want to say, about seven, eight, maybe eight or nine times, I want to say, in my life. I even have another trip to Turkey planned in about two weeks from now, where I've got to go back to finish up some stuff there. But after we finished this trip to Turkey, I took my family on to Georgia, and in this next clip from episode 266, I want to share some insights on what we saw in Georgia. So we got into Georgia and we had a driver pick us up. His name was David and his English was quite good, actually. In general, we found in Georgia that there was a lot of people who spoke English, which was nice. I mean, it's I'm not saying that they should speak English. I'm just saying if they do speak English, that my life becomes a whole heck of a lot easier. But it was really funny because we had six people and seven checked luggages and like three or four or five carry-on luggages and the stroller and everything that we had to get like a huge van everywhere we went basically because we had all the kids stuff and everything but we finally loaded up the vehicle and got in and went to leave the airport and i see that there's like a baseball bat like louisville slugger or something right in the driver's side door stuck in there and i'm like what is that for like you play baseball and he's like no to protect my tourists. <laughs> like, oh, all right. Is Georgia not a safe country? And he just kind of smiled at me. So that was kind of like our intro to Georgia. Now, after asking many people about Georgia, they did regard Georgia as a very safe country. So I was a little bit surprised, I think, at first that you would need to be carrying around a baseball bat everywhere with you because you know, you think that people are going to be targeting tourists. And he wasn't saying it. I mean, he was kind of saying it in jest. He smiled at me, but there was a legit baseball bat there. So I, 
you know, it kind of made me a bit weary as soon as we got going. We didn't see any problems, hear about any problems, or I think that there are any problems, but safety is always one of the first things that I'm looking at in a country. Now, the Georgian people, we had a decent amount of interactions with different people at the restaurants, on the street, the taxis, tourist things. We found them probably the least friendly of the four countries we went to. Out of Turkey, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, I'd say the Georgian people, or at least our experiences, were they were the least friendly of the four. We did have some really terrific experiences, but in general, we found the people to be very short with us and just really didn't want to give the time of day and just a whole bunch of pretty crummy experiences. But there was one really nice one. My wife and I decided on our first day that we wanted to take the public transport. We needed to go somewhere. So we picked up a card, charged it up with some money, and they had these really cute little minivans that they used as public buses. And we got on and it went one direction and we had to go for this meeting. And on coming back, we thought we'd just cross the road and come back, not realizing at first that it was a one-way street. So as soon as we, I mean, as soon as we got over to the other side of the street, we realized there was going to be no buses coming there. So we walked around and we tried to find where it would go so that we could take the public transport back. But I mean, it was totally not walkable. So we ended up getting on the public transport there and followed it all the way to the end of the line until it turned around and came back, which was like an only an extra 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something like that. But since we'd been going all over the city and it was our very first day, like our very first two hours or something in the city, in Tbilisi, we really didn't know where to get off, you know, what what was the most convenient stop. So there was some woman there, and we clearly did not look like Georgians, so she struck up a conversation with us in English, and her English was quite good once again, and she was very, very helpful, and she told the driver, who was not so pleasant, you know, one of those experiences, she like scolded him and was like, take care of these people and make sure they get off at the right stop and be nice to them. And she's like, you know, this older woman waving her finger at the driver and stuff like that. And she'd smile at us and, and she was phenomenal. And that really left a a good feeling that there was people there that wanted to take care of you. So that was really, really amazing. Now the food in Georgia was excellent, really unbelievably top-notch food. The produce and the meat and the dishes and the creativity, you know, was not just a rehashing of Turkish food, which we did see a lot in other places. Georgians seem to have like their own cuisine and I and I don't know anything that is the same. After visiting 110 countries in my life, I would say Georgian food. It's not just something else with a different name on it. But we love the food there. I would say out of the four countries we went to, Georgian food was probably the best. Now, there is a lot of the food that I was not able to eat because I'm a celiac, because I don't eat wheat, but my wife loved it. And because my wife is from China, they eat steam buns and dumplings, and they had like Georgian-style steam buns or Georgian-style steamed dumplings and things like that. So that was really amazing. And my kids went crazy for the food. Well, my daughter did at least. She was just gobbling it up like crazy. The wine was not as good as I expected in Georgia. I've always heard all of these stories that you could go for dinner, you know, you and your spouse get a bottle of wine and some food and it would be like $10 or $15 or something like that. We tried to buy 
average bottles of wine and, I mean, $10, $12 bottles of wine. And they were basically undrinkable. I mean, we just could not stomach these at all. We did have some really nice wine that my friend had picked out who knew the wine there a little bit better, but I'm sure he was not in that $10 range. I believe he was spending a lot more than that, but you know, this cheap, cheap wine and you can have wine with every meal and it's just a phenomenal quality and costs nothing. We didn't experience that at all, which was a shame. I have been told that the prices have gone up drastically in Georgia over the last few years. I think a big part of it is because of all of the Russians and Ukrainians coming in and just a giant influx of people and only so many goods to go around. So the price have gone up. I mean, supply and demand type of thing. There were good opportunities where we did find reasonably priced things. I remember going out for ice cream one night. I took my kids out and we found this little ice cream shop on the side of the road. We went in and it was gorgeous, like really, really nice looking, like the the atmosphere, like a beautiful cafe. And all of the ice creams were handmade and they had the strawberry ice cream had garnishes of fresh strawberries and the blackberry ice cream was made with local blackberries and pistachio ice cream and all this. And so we all got some and I think it was a dollar a scoop or something and huge scoops, like you wouldn't need two or three of this. It was too much. And so the whole thing with the nannies, with my moms, with everyone, I think it was like nine bucks or eight bucks or something like that in total, even with a tip. I mean, there's no way we would get ice cream for that cheap in Panama or in lots of other countries that I've been to. So continuing on on this trip in chronological order, after Georgia, we went on to Armenia. And I'm going to be talking in this clip a little bit about my perspective on Yerevan as a city and what there is to see and do there. So where I left you last was we actually took the train, the overnight train from Georgia to Yerevan in Armenia. Now, when I first got to Armenia, I thought it was not very nice, actually. We took a Grab or an Uber or whatever it was called there. Actually, I don't even think it was either one of those. I think they had their own style, but now the name is escaping me. Basically, to our Airbnb, we rented a whole house, a four-bedroom or four five-bedroom house with a backyard and a play area and lots of kids' toys so my kids could go crazy. And it was... The house itself was amazing, was like basically brand new, maybe a couple of years old, but the area it was in was complete rubbish. There was just nothing around it and it was just kind of run down and I thought, ooh, Armenia is not so nice. Then I went downtown and I was shocked. I was absolutely floored by how gorgeous downtown Yerevan was. There was so much to do. There were so many restaurants and cafes and bars. The walking on the sidewalks, I mean, it was really easy to walk and get around. There's tons of people. There was tourists. It was just unbelievable. Actually, I was so, so surprised. And it was really European feeling, like really, really European. And unlike Georgia, Armenia was very clean, actually. Georgia, as I mentioned last time, there was graffiti everywhere. In Yerevan, I didn't see one piece of graffiti anywhere. Everything was pristine and the downtown area was huge. I mean, the streets went on and on and on and it was so nicely done and they have spent a lot of time and effort and energy restoring everything and making it really nice. And they had these old private homes that they've now turned into restaurants and things or museums or hotels. And it was really, really gorgeous. 
Now, when we were there, the food was really excellent. Remember last time I said Georgian food was number one? I think Armenia was definitely number two. There were some really good options for the food. Once again, lots of fresh produce. The meat was high quality. Okay, it's a landlocked country, so no fish or seafood. I, I don't think that's the thing to order there. But what they did, they did right. And they had a lot of good options for the food for international cuisine. So we tried food from all over the world, which was really good. And then a lot of the local cuisine, which was unique as well. Now, the downtown area, as I said, was very, very European, very good for walking. And, and every time you went around a corner, there was another monument or statue or something going on there or a park. And there were so many places to sit down and just kind of do people watching and just enjoy the area. A lot of cafe culture, you know, people sitting on the street, people enjoying the beautiful weather there and just taking it easy. Now, I did find it a lot more business and entrepreneurial than Azerbaijan. I'll talk about Azerbaijan in next week's episode, but Armenia seemed like a lot of private businesses where Azerbaijan seemed like everything was state-sponsored, which I obviously am not a fan of. I like entrepreneurship and creativity. I don't like businesses that can't stand on their own two feet. You know, we need to deal with the marketplace. And actually, if we make money, it's because we're providing value. So in everything that I do, I'm always looking at the entrepreneurial side of things, not forced. And that was definitely Azerbaijan. Now, we did a lot of real estate, looking at real estate while we were there. Actually, we went to a building site that was being put up and we got a special invitation to go and tour it and to do some videography there. And it was really, really interesting to watch the site because Armenians are known at being quite good craftsmen and bricklayers and, and really good with their hands. So the construction was a very high quality and they probably spent about two or three hours with us, I want to say, and walked us through everything, showed us the windows that came from Germany, showed us the bricks are all made in Armenia. They showed us the piping, where it came from, and all of the different pieces because they were half done the construction. So we got to really see behind the curtain on this for sure. And then sometimes when you're looking at real estate, you know, it looks like the things are just put up so haphazardly, you know, made out of cardboard or something and there was an earthquake which in these regions there can be you know it would just fall over and that's where we've seen so much danger but this building was really high quality and the people really seemed to know what they were talking about they had studied engineering in the united states and then came back to armenia actually this was a theme we actually met a ton of people who had traveled lived overseas went to university overseas and then decided to come back to armenia and build their lives so that was very very interesting now a lot of the equipment was Chinese equipment. And because my wife is there and she's obviously from mainland China, she was able to read everything and translate some things. So it was pretty funny. Like even the construction elevator there, when it says where they are, it's all in Mandarin. It's all in Chinese. So that was pretty interesting. So she was kind of translating some stuff for them as well. So it seems like all of the building, the cranes and everything like that, and the elevators and all those things come from China, where a lot of the material came from either inside the country or from Europe. Now, the prices for the real estate were kind of what we expected. I mean, they're not 
it's not cheap, cheap, cheap place to buy real estate, but for some high quality condos and apartments, I think it was pretty good. You know, in the downtown area, you were looking at three, four, five hundred thousand dollars for a few bedroom apartment in the really, really prime location. Of course, if you're going out in the middle of the nowhere or you're going in an area that expats wouldn't want to be, probably it's, you know, a quarter of that or something like that. But I usually like to look at the luxury real estate because that's usually what my people are interested in. So we sat down, we had several meetings with real estate brokers and then obviously with the developers and the builders, as I said, and we were pretty impressed with the real estate there. So I'm going to be following along with this. Now, my understanding of this is the prices have gone up with the war in Ukraine and a lot of Ukrainians and Russians moving over to Armenia, but it didn't seem to be as bad as Georgia. Maybe not as many people, or maybe they can just absorb a little bit more. Now, it is a landlocked country, and they don't necessarily get along very well with their neighbors. So they've actually had to learn how to be very self-sufficient. Now, when we look at expat countries, one of the main things we're looking at is food independent, water independent, energy independent. But this is a country that's really able to produce a lot of its own material for building. You know, as I was saying, they're building their own bricks and their own cement and their own, all the building materials are coming from there. So that was really interesting for me to see as well. And something that I'm going to be taking away and looking at other countries is in their ability, not just to build, but to repair and to maintain and to sustain any type of development in the country. Now, the relationship with Russia seems to be souring a little bit, and that seems to be because of the current president there, which is really concerning. You know, I think that with the problems they already have with Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan being backed by Turkey. And Armenia was kind of backed by Russia for a long time. But it looks like they want to turn their backs on Russia and try to go in with the EU and NATO, which is an absolutely ridiculous idea. Absolutely so, so silly. So there's actually a contested area between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And the day after we left Azerbaijan, Armenia goes out and says, yeah, that land actually belongs to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. So the very next day or a couple days later, Azerbaijan invades and, and takes it back. So this contested area now goes back to Azerbaijan. And I was talking to Armenian clients that I have, and they were saying that this president is an absolute traitor to the country, and they don't know what he's doing. He's lost his mind. So there's been protests on the street. This all happened right after we left. So this was, I guess, the third war with Azerbaijan, even though it was extremely short. And I don't think that a lot of people lost their lives thank goodness. But I'm going to be watching this quite closely because actually what I'm interested in is finding a country which is friendly with Russia, but not on sanction lists. So I wanted to kind of look around and see this. And I thought it might be Armenia, but I'm not so sure yet. So I'm, I'm watching very, very closely the, the geopolitics of Armenia and seeing if they can get themselves straight. But if you watch what happened in 2008 when Georgia tried to get in with the EU and NATO or Ukraine now, I mean, I don't know what Armenia could possibly think, how they could possibly think that this is a good idea. But hopefully they'll give their head a shake and maybe this president, he'll be ousted and the country can go back to normal and it can go back to being a peaceful place. That would be very, very nice to see. Now, culturally for Armenia, it was one of the best countries that we saw. They had an opera house there, and we took my daughter to go see Romeo and Juliet, and it was phenomenal. I couldn't believe the skills of the dancers for such a small country. I mean, Yerevan is only a million people, not very big, and the quality was just 
unbelievable. And we've been to ballets and symphonies and operas and plays all over the world. And I was just so impressed with Armenian quality of the dancers and the performance and the music and everything. And actually, it seems that they have new presentations like all the time, every week, every two weeks, there's something else. So if we decided to spend some time in Armenia, we would be there every week. We would watch every single thing. Now, my last country on this tour, we went to Azerbaijan. So first we went to Turkey, Georgia, Armenia, and then Azerbaijan, and then back to Turkey. Now, Azerbaijan is a very, very interesting country. There were some things that I really liked there and some things I really did not like there. In this next clip from episode 268, I go on a bit of a rant about Azerbaijan and what I saw there. I hope you enjoy. So where I left you guys last is that we were talking about Armenia and Yerevan and what a great time we had in that country. Now, their borders are closed between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So what we had to do was actually drive. We rented a vehicle and, and had a driver drive us from Yerevan back to Tbilisi and drove us straight to the airport. I think we probably drove for six or seven hours or something like that, including the brakes, maybe a bit less than that. And then we took a one-way flight from Tbilisi to Baku. Now, Baku is the capital of Azerbaijan and is by far the largest city. And it's interesting because it sits right on the Caspian Sea and it's actually 28 meters below sea level. So it was a very, very different type of thing because you look out over the Caspian Sea and you kind of think that you were at the ocean. But you're not. I mean, it's, it is a country that is on the water, but it's not on the ocean. But you're basically just on a sea, which is not connected to anything else. So that was kind of weird. Now, the population of Baku is around 2 million people. And the airport coming in was very large and efficient and very, very nice. Really, really high quality. I was quite impressed coming into the country. Now, when we came from the airport into old Baku, into the old town, which is where we were staying, it really feels like we were back home in the UAE. It's all these modern buildings and the lights and super, super beautiful. And I was like, wow, I turned to my wife and I'm like, we're home. Like, I feel like we're home. But the next day when we started to learn about things, we really realized we were not home. And I'll get, I'll get into some of those things in a minute. But really where we spent a lot of our time was in the old city. And this was very beautiful. They've done a lot of work in restoration to make it quite nice. We spent about a week in Azerbaijan and we stayed at the same hotel, even though we came and left a couple of times. But the old town was very, very, very nice. Now, Baku is this weird mix. If I had to break it down for you, I would say it's about 20% Dubai. That's that beautiful lights coming in from the airport and these modern buildings side by side and skyscrapers and lots of glass and everything is brand, brand new. It's like 20% Dubai. And then you have areas that are like USSR, like leftover from the Soviet Union and they got Soviet vehicles and all this Soviet stuff, which is just a very stark contrast from Dubai. And then where we were in kind of the old town and surrounding the old town is very European. It looks like a French city. And when you're walking down the street and everything is lit up, I'm like, wow, I could believe I was in France right now. And another 20% is like Turkish, like they're they consider themselves Turkey's little brother and they have so much Turkish food and Turkish influence and even the language is basically Azerbaijani is a dialect of Turkish. But then there's also this, I'd say probably about 
15% of the country, of the overall country, which is very North Korean. It really reminded me of my time in North Korea. Now, the last, say, 5% of the whole country is distinctly its own, is, is Azerbaijani. But usually when I want to go to a place, I want to go to somewhere where it's like, a hundred percent distinctly its own or at least a higher percentage. But it was like, you know, just I, everywhere I went, I'm like, oh, that looks like Turkey. Oh, this looks exactly like North Korea or their attitude is exactly like North Korea. Or, oh, I think that they're trying to be Abu Dhabi and Dubai and the UAE with these buildings and with the Formula One and all of this. So it was this really, really weird mix. Now, Azerbaijan is a Muslim country, but one thing that was very interesting is it's I would say about 50-50 Shias and Sunnis, which is not normal. I mean, usually it's one or the other. And the other really weird thing is that they get along. Actually, the two sects of Islam, they seem to get along very, very well. Even our guide, was I think she was saying that she's a Shia and her husband is a Sunni. So that's a very different mix. Like I don't think you would find that in Bahrain or Iran or something like that. I mean, it's just, just not very, very likely. Now, I would say Azerbaijan is probably the least Muslim Muslim country that I have ever been to in my life. I don't think that we heard the call to prayer even once while we were there for a week. I'm so used to five times a day, everywhere I go, no matter what, hearing the call to prayer. I mean, I had a mosque right outside of my house when I lived in Abu Dhabi, so it didn't even wake me up in the morning. I was just so used to it after years and years. But it was not a very—they didn't seem to practice Islam very closely. We didn't see people going to, to the mosque or to call to prayer. We didn't seem to—they cared about these things at all. Another interesting thing is actually English was everywhere. Everything was written in English. It was really easy to get around in the country. And we met tons of people who spoke really phenomenal English, too. Another thing to consider with Baku is the F1, the Formula One. That is so prominent in anything and everything that you see in this. All of these big buildings and all of the restoration in the old town, it's all to show off for the camera for F1. So the F1 is actually on the regular street. So you can see the starting line and the finish line and everything like that. And you see these Louis Vuitton signs that are around this bend and some other big designer brand around the next bend. And so it's really well thought out in this, but I think they want to be this world international city and they want to be on the center stage and they want to be Dubai or Abu Dhabi or something like that. But it's not, it's Baku. And when you look at all of these big buildings, you realize that they're not there because of entrepreneurship. They're not there because they need all this commercial real estate because people are building businesses or anything like that. It's like everything is state-sponsored. Everything is government-sponsored. When we're going around with our guide, she's like, this is the government building of here. This is the ministry of that. That one is the tourism and the courthouse. And like anything and everything was related to government. There was like no private businesses at all. And it was so funny. She's like, oh, that is the Ferris wheel. It's state-sponsored. We're like, oh, cool. Let's go see it. She's like, it's broken. Like, oh, okay. Oh, what's that big ship down there? The cruise ship. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's a state-sponsored cruise ship. It's broken. It doesn't work anymore. They didn't 
proper I can't remember what it was. It was like they didn't properly judge the depth of the waterways from Baku. So it's basically grounded and it can't be used. So it was just like over and over and over again. Like this doesn't work. Oh, that doesn't work. But she was proud that these were government buildings and the government had done all these things. But it was none of it was private businesses, which for me just means that it's all artificial. You know, it's all fake. And I don't like fake stuff. I like real stuff. I want the marketplace to decide. But really, it did come down to everything from the, the government all came from oil dollars. Now, this was really interesting. When we saw plays and operas and propaganda and everything like that, there was no woke agenda. There was no climate crisis or climate boiling or any of this nonsense. They were super proud that they are an oil-rich country. Like, they were bragging about it. They were so happy that they have hydrocarbons in that country. And without them, you could see that the country just would not be able to exist. It wouldn't have this level of wealth there whatsoever. But they're using all of this money for all these state-sponsored things to prop up all these industries and attract things like the Formula One and put up these high-rise buildings and all of this stuff. So that is just so weird to see. And it, when you talk to the people, or when we even talk to our guide, she would tell us like a thousand times, oh, Azerbaijan is a European democracy. Azerbaijan is a European democracy. First of all, I think that she had never been to Europe in my life because she had absolutely no idea what she was talking about. And to brag about being a European democracy, I thought was absolutely hilarious. Like, talk about a area of the world which is completely messed up and socialism is going crazy. Now, Europeans already lose their absolute minds when you tell them that Turkey is a European country. I mean, first of all, Turkey, geographically, a good portion of it is part of Europe and they're part of NATO. Now, you start telling people that Azerbaijan is a European country, they're heads are going to explode. Like, I just don't think the Europeans would like this whatsoever. But they would proudly say this. So we were asking lots about the politics, not just the, the geopolitics, but the politics inside the country and the executive branch and things like that. And when she was describing it to me, I'm like, this is not a democracy whatsoever. This is a complete fake, I mean, totalitarian type of regime and the amount of time they've been in place and what they do from the propaganda side. I mean, what an absolute farce. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm very happy I went to Azerbaijan. I'm very glad that I had a chance to go there. But I mean, like North Korea doesn't pretend to be a democracy. It doesn't pretend to be a land of freedom by any means. They know that they're this weird kooky country with weird laws and propaganda everywhere and holding up the great leader. But Azerbaijan doesn't seem to see this at all, which I just think is very, very weird. We went to one of the big museums in Baku, and the museum itself was absolutely gorgeous. The outside of the museum was really, really interesting. The architecture, they don't have any straight lines. Everything is very flowing and curving. But once you get inside, it's basically the propaganda museum. It was so shit. I was absolutely shocked how you could take a museum and make it this bad. It was basically a whole section of it was gifts from other countries to Azerbaijan 
Busan, and I saw museums exactly like this in North Korea when I was there for a few weeks. And it was basically trying to showcase the legitimacy of Azerbaijan as a sovereign nation and the legitimacy of the people in the government and the ruling party there. Then, so that was one big section. Another big section of it was like the cars. This is the car that the president drove from this year to this year. This is the limo that took him to this event. This is this car that took him over here, like all these 1980s, 1990s, year 2000 vehicles. So this was just like, I just do not care whatsoever, whatsoever, like at all. So we cut that tour very, very short and I was not impressed at all. You know, I want to see real cultural things, not this things that are just held up that are all make-believe by the government. But really, Azerbaijan just feels like a confused country that it has no idea what it's trying to do. As I said, part of it looks like it wants to be Dubai. Another part wants to be European. Part of it wants to be this North Korean dictatorship. You know, they even had London-style cabs there. Like this totally random import. Like why do you have London cabs in Baku? Like the great leader went to London and thought, hey, these are cool. I'm going to import a thousand of these to the country. So random. So you see that next to these USSR older vehicles that are like five grand a piece or something like that, these clunkers. It's so, so weird. We did go to see an opera while we were there. We were really excited about it. Like I said, I think in the last episode on Armenia, we love this type of cultural things. But it was all about the great leader. We really didn't know what we were about to see. We just thought it was going to be just an opera. And it was all about the great leader, you know, where he was born, and then about his kids and about his wife and then holding it up and then he fixed this and then he did this and then military parades. They had screens in the background and then they're singing over and then military parades and then a big segment on the oil industry and holding this up and it was just it was a bunch of flag waving. It was I, I, I will stop about this, but I just can't, I couldn't get over it the whole week. I'm still reeling from the whole thing. So in those last couple of clips, I've described a trip that I went on for about five weeks with my kids, my mother, my wife, and even the nanny. Now, this was just a few months ago, but actually earlier in the year, I did some other trips, but I didn't do any episodes about it, so we didn't have any good clips for you. But just really quickly, in a nutshell, at the beginning of the year, I went to Jamaica with my wife for a week. And you know what? Every year around New Year's time, I like to go to a new place. I like to sit on the beach or sit at the resort with a giant notebook and a pen and just listen to some audiobooks, take some notes and kind of map out and plan out the year ahead. Now, unfortunately, going into 2024, we've decided not to do this. But last year in Jamaica, that is exactly what I did. And I had a great time while there. About three weeks after that, we actually went to Dominican Republic with the kids on a vacation. I am sure I have a clip in there somewhere or at least wrote about it in the newsletter of what I saw at the Nickelodeon Resort and the Agenda 2030 that made me physically nauseous. I'm not going to get back into that, but if you guys are on the newsletter, then you guys know what I am talking about. From there, we were back in Panama for a little bit, and I also took the wife to Peru this year for the very first time. It was her birthday, so we went over to Peru. We went and hiked Machu Picchu. We went to the Nazca Lines. We did a ton of amazing things there and ate so much good food. 
Now, Peru, I would not describe as a top expat destination by any means, but for tourism, it was really spectacular. Now, in this next clip, I had just finished speaking at an event in Prague, Czech Republic, and I'm heading home back to Panama and all of the drama that entails on this journey. Now, here's where kind of the drama starts after I left the conference. The conference was fantastic. Everything went perfect there. No drama there. But the, <laughs> the drama started when I went to leave Prague and head to Istanbul. I had meetings in Istanbul, so I was supposed to be there for 24 hours. So what happened was I checked in on time. I checked my bag. I went through security. I went through everything. I'm waiting in the business class lounge and it's not turning over on the screen, not turning over, not turning over. You know, usually it says boarding now or whatever. I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go just in case. So I get down there and everybody's lined up, but they're not letting people on the airplane. So I sit down at a cafe, just relaxing. I can watch and like 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour goes by and nothing. So I go up to the front desk and I'm like, what's happening? They said, oh, it's been delayed. I'm like, oh, okay. I have a connecting flight. I'm actually going to Istanbul. Actually, this flight was going to Warsaw and then Warsaw to Istanbul. And I was like, okay, so if I miss my flight in Warsaw to to Istanbul, what happens? And they're like, well, we don't know, but not if you miss your connecting flight, you will miss your connecting flight, or you already have missed your connecting flight. I'm like, well, what do I do? They're like, I don't know, get another flight. I'm like, okay, fine. So they tell me where to go, and I go downstairs, and they, they basically offload me from the flight. So I go, and I, I go to grab my bag, but there's no one there to get the bags. So I'm waiting around for like 20 minutes and trying to talk to people, and I don't speak Czech at all. I mean, as I said, it was my first time in Prague, so I really don't know any Czech. The guy doesn't speak any English or Spanish or any of the other bits and bobs of languages that I speak. So Google Translate our way through it, and he says it's going to be quite a while. So I'm like, okay, I had seen on the board that there was actually direct flights from Prague to Istanbul with Turkish Airlines. And I know that Polish Airlines and Turkish Airlines are both Star Alliance. So I'm like, okay, maybe they'll let me transfer my flight to there. So while we're waiting for the bags, I, I talked to them and they said, well, you can go and get your ticket. And then by the time you have your ticket, you can come back and get your bag. I'm like, okay, sounds solid. Let's go. So I go to the info counter and they send me over to Terminal 2, which is like a solid 10 minute walk. So I quickly speed walk my way over there get over there and I talked to the office and they said, no, it's terminal one. I'm like, okay, wonderful. Thank you. So I turn around and I go back the way that I came and I run back. It's another 10 minutes. And by this point, I'm like, okay, it's been 20 minutes. I might as well go get my bag. So I go to get the bag and, and it's, it's airside and I'm now not airside. So I have to not really go through security, but like kind of a makeshift security and then claim my bag. But it took another 10, 15 minutes to get the bag. So I run back to terminal one, get my bag and I still waited 10 minutes or 15 minutes for my bag and I go upstairs to Terminal 1 and I talk to them and they said they can only get me back on the Polish Airlines and couldn't look at the Turkish Airlines even though it's on their sign like it's literally right there on the sign so they send me back to Terminal 2 again to the ticket desk and I directly book the flight with one of the agents there but it's another 10 minutes all the way over there and now this time I've got my bags with me but he tells me I've now missed the 9:30 a.m. flight in Turkish Airlines because this is all first thing in the morning and the next one is at 4 p.m. for $400 in economy class or 2 p.m. for $800 in economy class this is like a one-hour flight 
like, oh my goodness. So I run back to Terminal 1 again with all of my bags to the desk and they put me on a second Polish Airlines flight, but I'm downgraded to economy class. So I got to use my original ticket. It didn't cost me any extra, but they downgraded me and I got onto the next flight. Now, they didn't even tell me when they offloaded me originally that there was going to be additional flights to Istanbul from Warsaw. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten offloaded. I would have just stayed there. But I really had to make this flight to Istanbul because of the meetings that I had set up and there was just no way to postpone them. I actually thought I was going to miss the entire trip to Istanbul. So then I have to do security all over again and customs and everything like that. And I'm now on the other side of the airport. I'm sweating and I'm exhausted. It's like 30 minutes before departure. And I ask the woman at the gate, I, I finally, finally, finally get to the gate. And I ask her about boarding because there's no one around. And she legit yells at me <laughs> and tells me to wait until the other passengers have disembarked. Like I am the stupidest person in the world and so impatient. And she just like glares at me and gives me dagger eyes. I've like literally just arrived after all of this drama and been running around the airport. But eventually I get on the airplane and I get to go to Warsaw and then from Warsaw to Istanbul. Now, once I get into Warsaw, I've got to wait, I think, a couple of hours there. But I still had access to the business class lounge because I'm a priority pass member. I always have to have priority pass just in case. But the flights were uneventful. Finally, I got into Istanbul. I was absolutely shattered. So I just grabbed some food at this point because it was basically a full day of travel and I got some sleep. Now, the next morning, I got the chance to meet my lawyer. I had some meetings with her and then we went to the Canadian embassy. I had to do a sworn affidavit. You guys will know what that is about if you go back and listen to my episode on Turkey, basically some immigration stuff. So I had to do a signed affidavit at the Canadian embassy for the Turkish government on a bunch of drama, drama. And then we went and had brunch on the Bosphorus and it was kind of finished by mid-morning. It was absolutely stunning day. We were right on the water, just hanging out, talking, talking, talking. Hopefully I'll be doing a bunch more work in the future. So she was helping me to map out some events and conferences and investors tours that I want to do with my hub members and private clients probably in 2024. So she would be the one that I would work with on that. And she was helping me through all that. So we mapped it all out. Then I worked all day on the computer for about 10 hours, just answering emails and going through things and just a bunch of paperwork and private client work. And you know what? By the end of the day, I just could not be bothered to go out and get dinner before my flight because I was leaving at midnight. I actually booked two nights at the hotel, even though I was leaving at midnight. And then I thought, you know what, I'll get a bit of a nap. But I tossed and turned and I couldn't sleep. So I thought, never mind. I haven't eaten. I haven't slept. I've been at it all day long. I can't even see straight. Never mind. I'm going to get to Turkish airport. I'm going to go straight to the business class lounge. I'm going to have a full meal. I'm going to get on board and I'll put my head down and sleep as soon as we take off. But I take the transport there. They drop me off. I go to the business class check-in and they do not have a ticket for me. I'm like what? <laughs> Excuse me, where's my ticket? They have no idea. I am not registered in their system and the flight is full. The flight is actually supposed to go to Havana and I'll get to Havana in a, in a moment why I went there. But it's supposed to go to Havana with Turkish Airlines, then I swap and then I'm, I'm there for half a day and then I go on with Copa Airlines. But no one knows what's going on. I show them the ticket number. They're like, we don't have it. And there's like four different girls there and they're all useless and super rude. So 
unfriendly. I could not believe it. Finally, I found one gentleman who worked for Turkish Airlines, and he was amazing. He was really, really helpful and talked to me and explained what was going on. We got my assistant in Panama to try to figure things out. My wife, my mother, my assistant, all trying to help out, figure out what's going on. They're calling Copa Airlines, which was the original airline that I had bought because I used Copa, then Lufthansa, then Polish Air, and then Turkish Airlines, and then Copa again. So I had this multi-sector. And we finally figured out after about an hour, hour and a half, and I mean, time is now ticking, like we're getting really close to takeoff, that the flight got canceled because they offloaded me from that Warsaw flight, even though I still use the ticket, they're like, yeah, you were a no-show for your flight. I was like, excuse me, that's not true. I showed up for my flight. They offloaded me because the flight was delayed and they wanted me to get a different way to Istanbul because I had to be in Istanbul. So it ended up screwing up everything. So multi-sector flights, be super, super careful. If there's any problems with the flight, things like this can happen. So at this point, it's about 45 minutes before takeoff and the check-in gate is closing. Like I think technically it had closed about five minutes before. So we finally figured out what was happened. So the ticket was gone. So I had to pull out my credit card and buy a new business class ticket one way from Istanbul to Havana, which was stupid, stupid expensive. And I ended up actually buying the seat that I had already had a ticket for, but now at twice the price or three times the price of what I had paid before. And then my wife is going through and she's getting me a flight on Copa Airlines from Havana to Panama. And I just get it in time. And thank God. And, and you'll find out in a little bit why. But basically, there's no connection with my international SIM card in Cuba. So I have to now run through security and customs and everything like that. And then, of course, the gate is the very, very, very last one of the airport. If you guys have ever been to Istanbul, Istanbul Airport, you will know it is absolutely monstrous. It is so, so big. So I'm running, like sprinting with my bags for a solid 15, 20 minutes to get to my gate there. And I get in board just in time. Now, at this point... I still haven't slept. I haven't eaten anything because I missed the business class lounge and they don't serve dinner for about two hours until takeoff. So this taught me once again a lesson that I already knew very, very well and I have no one to blame but myself is that I should have eaten and I should have slept before the flight. But anyways, the flight was very nice. The staff on board took very good care of me. I must have looked quite disheveled by that moment, but I had a nice meal on board, lying flat bed, slept the whole way got up, had a double espresso, and then I got into Cuba. Now, if you thought that was a lot of drama, wait till you hear about Cuba. <laughs> to hear the rest of that story, go listen to episode 271 of the podcast. In this next clip, I'm going to be talking to you guys about what it's like on one of our expat exploration and investment tours with my company, Expat Money. We go from Panama to Uruguay on this trip. I had 26 of my clients with me, and the trip was phenomenal. Now, if you guys want to come on some trips with me in 2024, then consider becoming a private client, or when we reopen the Hub membership next year, make sure you guys sign up. Super important. You guys will actually be able to find out more more information about this at expatmoney.com. Okay, let's jump into the clip about Uruguay. 
We started in Panama City. We actually ran a small mini Panama tour for a couple of the clients who asked for it. But what we did was when we got everybody into Panama, we met up for dinner, we did a quick orientation. And then the next morning, I had a bus that took us all to Tucumán Airport in Panama. Now, after we got our tickets, went through immigration together and cleared security, we went up to the business class lounge and hung out for a couple of hours before the flight. Panama Tucumán Airport has a brand new terminal and it is just gorgeous and the business class lounge is really, really nice. Now, the trip down to Uruguay is about seven, seven and a half hours, but I was in business class and had a flat bed, so I slept the majority of the way, actually. Going through immigration in Uruguay is super, super easy, and the staff is actually pretty polite there. They actually have new machines there where our Canadian and American passports, and I think the German passports as well, we're able to clear immigration by just using your passport inside of the machine. So super, super fast. By the time we got to the hotel, it was about dinner time. So we all met downstairs for dinner, had a really good steak, and then got some nice sleep. In the morning, we had a leisurely time by the pool, enjoyed a bit of the view on the lake. And then I had a private bus pick us up and take us out to Punta Leste, which is where the majority of the tour took place. That night, we did a full orientation with all of our partners in Uruguay, had a bunch of wine, and went out for a really spectacular dinner. The next morning, we started the conference material. We actually did three days of conference material, say two to three hours each morning, lots of Q&A, lots of really excellent presentations, and then we did field trips in the afternoon. One of the days, we went and saw a real estate tour. Another day, we went and saw farmland. And then after that, we did a field trip out to the museum. It is a massive sculpture park, and it's just so stunning. I've been out there several times now, and I love it. Actually, a quick side note about that. So it is actually a park and a museum done by Pablo Achuar, and you guys have probably heard me talk about him before. I absolutely love his sculptures. And I was talking to the women who worked at the museum about about possibly purchasing one of his pieces of art. Now, these are very, very expensive, but I am, I am quite certain that at one point, these will go up in value considerably. So I'm actually considering buying one of these as an investment. I want to see what it is like to put a large, probably six-figure or low six-figure amount into a piece of art and then see how it holds its value over the next, say, 5, 10, 20 years because they're not going to be making much more of this. Pablo Achuari is 69 years old and he seems to be in good health, thank goodness. And I hope he lives a very long and healthy life. But at some point, everybody must pass away. And I am sure his art will absolutely go to the moon. It is super, super unique. I absolutely love his pieces. I have multiple books about him. I've watched him work. I've met his wife and taken tours of the place. I have friends who have pieces and they're all very happy with it. So I think it'll be a really interesting case study to invest in art as an investment and then see how it does over the years years. Should be pretty interesting. Anyways, that's what we did for the first couple of days. Lots of field trips in the afternoons. We went out and saw some of the real estate, some condos, some houses, different places like that. Now, during this trip, we were eating amazing food. You know, this was not just some random buffet and everybody just slops stuff on. No, we were going out to the finest restaurants in the whole city, gorgeous desserts, amazing meats, fantastic wine, and just like Stunning desserts. And there was so much gluten-free food there. I was so happy as well. They have the pau de queso there, just like in Brazil. So I was super, super excited. 
On the last day of the trip, we actually went out to La Bodega Garzon, which is the winery out there. And I've been out there multiple times, and I just love it. We got to take a tour of the vineyard as well as a private tour of the winery itself. We had, I think, a five-course or six-course degustation menu with matching wines and sparkling wine and even a dessert wine at the end, which was really, really good. And it was so, so much fun. Now, this is a private tour. This was not open to the general public, and we'll kind of get into that in a bit. But it was a nice, small, intimate group. I think we had 26 people sign up, but as I mentioned before, a couple of people couldn't make it. But then we ended up getting one more last minute. So I think we had about 25 people on the trip, which is really the perfect size. I like to do the trips between 20 and 25 people people. We did eight days. I think next year we might extend it to nine days and add in an extra day of shopping and maybe something in Montevideo. We'll have to see how that goes. The barbecue was really good. We did live music. We actually had tango dancers come in. They were national champions of Uruguay as tango dancers. They, they've been dancing as a couple for ages. I've seen her dance before. It was the first time I watched him dance, but I've seen her dance before and they're both just unbelievable. And they gave little lessons to a lot of the attendees. And it was just awesome to watch everybody let their hair down and just have a bit of fun and learn some of the cultural things of Uruguay. In this last clip from episode 273, I'm talking about my scouting trip to Paraguay. Paraguay is a super interesting place, and I will be talking a lot more about this in 2024. And we got off the airplane. It, it is so hot in Ascension. I couldn't believe it. We had been wearing like winter coats in Uruguay, I guess because we're right on the water, we're right on the ocean and you get maybe those colder breezes from Antarctica or I'm not sure what it is. But once we got up to Ascension, it was ridiculously hot. I was I was not prepared for it at all. Maybe I should have done a little bit more homework on it. But that's okay. We got picked up by my friend Thorsten's team. So he had his driver and his videographer come and pick us up. Now, Thorsten is a, is a very good friend of mine. He works in the German language space, kind of doing similar things to what I do. And he set up this tour for us. So he had his people picking us up there. And we drove for about three hours from Ascension out to Villarica. Now, this was a little bit of a surprise because I thought we were just going back to the hotel. So we were not ready. We were not dressed for it at all. But that's okay. We had got in at a pretty decent time and we drove up to Villarica. And when we got to the hotel we were supposed to stay at, they only had one room for us. So we kind of like were arguing back and forth with them and we're trying to figure out what's going on. Because I guess there's a huge, huge event going on at Villarica right now. So a lot of the hotels are full and we weren't sure who our reservation was made under because it was actually covered for us. So we were checking my name. We were checking Susan's name from my team who was helping to run my Uruguay trip for me. We were checking under different companies' names and Thorsten's company name and and all of these different things, but we only had one room. So I sat there at the restaurant and had a really big steak while we were trying to figure this out. It was pretty funny, actually. I ordered a cowboy steak to myself. This is probably about, ooh, about two kilos, I would say, of meat. And I had that for lunch. Forget all the potatoes and vegetables and salad and everything like that. Never mind. I'm in Latin America. I'm going to have a massive steak for my lunch. I think they usually share this probably between a family. But, oh well. It was really, really good. I was pretty stoked about it. Anyways, we finally figured out that they really did only have one hotel. So we got moved to another hotel where they had two separate rooms for us. And so that took a little bit of going back and forth, but that's all right. 
after that, we went out to go see a forest plantation, a, a timber plantation. And it's pretty interesting. They actually won a Guinness Book of World Records, and we went to their celebration for winning this. So this, this all happened on the day that we were there. So I guess they won for the world's largest natural logo. So I'm not sure the exact dimensions, but it was like a couple of kilometers by, I think it was like a kilometer by a half a kilometer, I want to say, or maybe it was two kilometers by one kilometer. Anyways, it was massive. We actually got to drive through it and then there was drones. The videographer had his own drone, so we got to see that and they had a big live screen television and then they were doing it and they had the people from Guinness Book of World Records there actually measuring it and checking all the statistics and doing all of these types of things. So that was super interesting. It was my first Guinness Book of World Records that I had ever attended. So that night, we actually went to a huge party at someone's estancion, basically a giant ranch or giant farm. And we had a huge barbecue there to celebrate the Guinness Book of World Records. And there were speeches and there was the press there and everything like that. And since my friend Thorsten had a lot to do with this project, he actually got an award while we were there. And we were sat up on the main stage with him. And uh, they had live music and open bar. And the barbecue was probably one of the largest barbecues I've ever seen in my life, which was ridiculous. I'm going to see if I can put out some of the video from this on our Instagram or maybe on YouTube or something. I'm not sure. But it was good fun and and we had a good day. So that was our first day. That was all on Saturday. Sunday, the next day, we went on a tour of the timber plantations themselves. And we got to see where they mill it. We got to see all the equipment. We drove through the plantation. And we literally just, we drove and drove and drove. It was just hectares upon hectares upon hectares of these timber plantations. Like all along the highway, you see the different types of eucalyptus. So this is all fast-growing eucalyptus. And they use it for furniture, for building materials. They even burn it for cooking. And they're even going to be using it for making plywood because they can actually charge considerably more per cubic meter for plywood than they can for just raw wood or for the wood pellets. Actually, it's not wood pellets, it wood chips, and they use it for the burning. But uh, yeah, it's all fast-growing eucalyptus. I'm pretty accustomed to this type of wood. We, we do a lot of it with our projects in Colombia, also being down in Uruguay multiple times. I've got to see a lot of the plantations. A lot of Central American stuff, we do more hardwoods, but I'm involved in a bunch of projects in South America, which are these types of eucalyptus, some pine, other types of trees as well. I've had a lot to do with timber for probably the last seven or eight years. It's a business model that I really, really like. And I think you guys have probably heard me talk about it many, many times. And we own some timberland ourselves. After doing this tour, which probably took us about four or five hours to go through, we had lunch with the owner and we went through everything, discussed a lot of the details, try to understand the economics and the business and the size and the scale and the prices and how they view things in Paraguay opposed to some of the other countries that I'm working in. After that, we drove for about two hours and I went to a large gated community in the middle of nowhere. So this was mostly German-speaking community. It's mostly like Austrians, Swiss, Germans, etc., etc. And we had a special invitation to go there. And we actually had to be interviewed in advance. We had to send our passport copies in advance. They do basically a name check or a world check on us. They run our names through all these databases to make sure that we're not criminals or anyone nefarious. And of course, we didn't have any problems with that. But it's kind of interesting that just to go and visit this community, you have to go through all of these types of things. Now, this place is really in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's really, really out there. But we got to meet the founders of the development and we got to take a tour of it. The place is massive. Like it's, 
absolutely insanely large. We only saw a small portion of it, even though we were there for the whole afternoon going through it. And they had vegetable gardens and they had sheep and they used to have cattle, but I think they got rid of the majority of the cattle there. We got to go see a 3D printer that they use for building the walls, for putting up homes. We got to view some of the properties. It was quite interesting. And they're really aiming at being a fully self-sufficient community. So if you're in the German market, I think it might make sense for you if you're in the American or if you don't speak German, I'm not sure if this is a good fit for you because it really did seem like a mostly German group of people who were there. Now, the last country that I went to in 2023 was Ecuador. I was actually there just a week or so ago, and it was a fantastic time. I've been working on a project with some colleagues of mine there for a while, so they invited me over last minute. I think I was there for four days only, and I ran around the entire country meeting, meeting, meeting all day long. So I have not had a chance to do a specific episode about that, but stay tuned in 2024 because I expect to be talking a lot more about Ecuador as if this project goes through, there could be some really interesting things. At the moment, I'm still under an NDA, so I can't really share with you too, too much. But once again, pay attention to 2024 on the Expat Money Show and on our newsletter at expatmoney.com, and you guys will be able to find out more. So there you have it. That is the best of travel for me at 2023. Tons of cool things happened this year. Went to a whole host of new countries. Lots of drama, lots of stories, lots of fun things traveling with the kids, eating lots of good food, exploring and finding new expat destinations for my clients. I am always doing research. I do not do these things at an armchair level. I am always out there on the ground, seeing things, boots on the ground research for you guys and doing my best to share it with everybody. If you guys want to become a private client, if you guys want to discuss these things one-on-one with me or you want to get some help, Either consider being a private client at expatmoney.com, top right-hand corner. Go there. You're going to see a big orange button that says work with us. Read the corresponding letter. And at the very bottom of it, you will see an application form to work with me, okay? If you are a high net worth individual, then consider taking this. If you are not quite at that high net worth level, that's okay. We should be opening up our hub membership again in the next little while. Pay attention to the newsletter. All the details will be there. That's it. Have a fantastic holidays. We will see you next Wednesday, 6 a.m. Thanks so much. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. 
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.